You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. list. This series is all about the Odyssey. We talked about the Iliad last year. Now we're doing 11 episodes, I think, on the Odyssey. And here we're talking about books one and two of the Odyssey. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And you've heard me on the Christian Humanist podcast before they were live, sometimes on Christian Humanist profiles. And I think by the time this airs, I will have been on every show on the network except the new one, Restoration. And uh, I don't, I don't know, given my int- my interests and expertise, if I will ever be asked to be on Restoration, which is a show about uh, conservation and nature. It's, I don't know that I'll have much to say there. But anyway, uh, I'm joined by Coyle Neal from Bolivar, Missouri. Coyle is one of the founding hosts of City of Man. He's been on Sectarian Review, I think. Is that right, Coyle? Uh, I have been. Yes. What else have you been on? Where else might uh, our listeners if- know you from? Yeah, if uh, if the Halloween crossover episodes count, uh, then I have been on the Christian Feminist podcast because uh, you know, let's be honest, that's the only way I'm ever going to be on that podcast. That's true. Uh, what, a, what an odd pick. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I don't know if I've been on the the flagship show or not. I, I don't I don't think so. Well, we don't uh, so really I, have I think, a lot of guests. I mean, sometimes if if one of us is out, we get it's usually either Todd or Danny for whatever reason to to fill in for us. Yeah. Well, and honestly, it's another show that it's unlikely I'd ever be on because why? Why would I? So, uh, uh, not that I'm against it, it's just different fields of interest. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> sectarian and uh, city man, I think is pretty much it. Profiles, I guess, profiles episodes. Well, also joining us from oh gosh, Jordan, I should have asked, is it Greensboro, <laughs> South Carolina? Uh, Fountain Inn. Now. Fountain Inn. Why did I think it was a green something? Well, I used to work. I used to live and work in Greenville. Now I live in Fountain Inn and work in Greenwood. Greenwood. I knew there was a green, yeah. and I knew it wasn't All Greenville. Every other thing in the upstate is named after Nathaniel Green. Sure. So. Well, there's a Greensboro, <laughs> Georgia that I'm familiar with. Right, yeah. Anyway, uh, you've heard Jordan also on <laughs> City of Man and Sectarian Review and other places, Jordan, probably? Uh, I've been on the flagship show once for a Halloween episode. Uh, me and I think Todd and David did the 39 Steps. Oh, cool, um, yeah. I've been on. I think I've, I've traveled around on the Halloween episodes. I was on um, Oh Book of Nature once for the uh, the Twilight Zone one, and um, I did one Profiles episode years ago. I think that's about it, though. And our listeners can't see this, but Jordan is flanked by what looks like some sort of beautiful uniform edition of some oh. collection. What is that? It's my Penguin Classics. Oh my god! So did you? For a while on Amazon, you could just buy 350 of them. Did you just did you buy the whole set? No, I actually assembled these piecemeal over oh the course of about about 20 years. I, I was sad because I noticed uh, the last couple times I've been to Barnes and Noble, they are kind of rejiggering the cover design a little bit. So any new ones I get won't match. Which, uh, you know, the the th- this will not matter by the time we release this episode. But the episode y'all did on that Walter Benjamin essay about one's library uh talking about matching editions i <laughs> identified really strongly with man that yeah is my, my very core <laughs> yeah uh talk to my wife about it sometime. <laughs> but yeah my, my first one was uh mark musa's translation of inferno sure. and i've just been collecting them ever since well i do you do you have the penguin classics edition of the odyssey yeah, that's the one I'm reading out of. I've actually got two translations in Penguin Classics. And who's your uh, the, translator? We may as well go ahead and get that out of the way. Yeah, I am reading from Robert Fagels. Okay. Um, same as the Iliad um, uh, back when we did that. How about you, Coyle? Uh, not Penguin Classics, but also the Fagels. Uh, the, the version that always amuses me because it says one of the ten best books of 1996, <laughs> which I, I think there's several things wrong with that statement, but... Uh, 
Well, I've got that same one, and also I have the Stanley Lombardo translation. And the reason I have both of them is because my Lombardo was in the pod where all my books lived for the year in which I did not have a uh, home to put them in. So uh, I, I read Fagel's for this, but I've read Lombardo in the past and prefer him, so I can refer to both of them. And for what it's worth, I have also consulted uh, Richmond Lattimore. Oh, that's the classic. I find that one kind of right. fusty. I kind of like it. Uh, it feels elevated, which is classically uh, one of the kind of criteria of what makes an epic poem. Um, I can see why people would not dig that. I really love the uh, immediacy of Robert Fagel's. Uh, Lombardo is great, too, for precisely the same reason, but I, I feel like Fagel's balances those extremes. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Lombardo writes like an action movie, which is why I really like yeah. him. Um, Fagel's, to me, is like Super Mario from Super Mario Brothers <laughs> 2, you know? He can't jump as high as, as Luigi, and he can't run as fast as Toad, but he's a good all-around translation. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Well, whatever translation you uh, you you read, we begin with an invocation of the muse, just like we do in uh, in the, in the Iliad. And I I'm, I want to read the Fagel's translation of that invocation, um, since that's the one we've all got. Sing to me of the man, muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course. Once he had plundered the hallowed heights of Troy, many cities of men he saw and learned their minds. Many pains he suffered, heartsick on the open sea fighting to save his life and bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster, hard as he strove. The recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all, the blind fools. They devoured the cattle of the sun, and the sun god wiped from sight the day of their return. Launch out on his story, muse, daughter of Zeus. Start from where you will. Sing for our time, too. What do you think about the way that invocation uh, compares to the one that begins the Iliad, which is all about Achilles' rage? Well, so, sort of, sort of like the Iliad, uh, it's it is setting the frame for the the poem, right? It, it's about getting home and restoring the home and all of the difficulties you have to go through uh, in getting there. So all of the all of the loss and all of the suffering. So just like the intro to the Iliad, which sets up the poem as a poem being about rage and the settlement of rage, the the, the easing of rage. In the same way, it's it's doing the same thing, right? It's 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 framing the story and telling us what's going to happen over the next however many books. I don't even remember how many books are in it. Twenty-four, just like in the Iliad. Right, but they're a little shorter. Hmm. Yeah, I think it does a good job of setting the scene uh, and introducing. I mean, despite being on the same side of the Trojan War, Odysseus and Achilles are radically different characters. Uh, Achilles is kind of all on the surface, and Odysseus is constantly presenting a variety of surfaces, depending upon the situation. Right? It's a very and, nice, very politic way to put it. <laughs> I, I like Odysseus, even though I recognize that I probably would want to stay far away from him if I knew him personally. Uh, yeah, the, the man of many ways, or the man of twists and turns. It's hard for me not to hear this... Um, in Robert Fitzgerald's translation, because that's more or less the translation they show at the beginning of O Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, I wondered how long it would take you to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm bringing it out at the beginning. We, we've already recorded episode 10, and I mentioned it there, too. Yeah, we mentioned but, uh, it in a later episode, too. Yeah, that's, that's how I always hear the invocation <laughs> of the muse, because I've watched that movie so many times. But the man of many ways and the man of twists and turns, I mean, it. it I, I'm also interested in the way that I don't recall the invocation of the muse in the Iliad bringing up such a specific episode yeah. in the story as as the you know eating the cattle of the sun is in this. I believe uh, the, speci the specificity in the Iliad's um, invocation is of of him being mad at Agamemnon for not for for not right. getting what he deserves. But this is right. so much later in the book, right? The sun, the cattle of the sun, is what book twelve? It's right at the middle. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, they. The, the uh, Achilles' rage at Agamemnon follows on from the invocation so immediately. Right. It's almost like this kind of wham-bam, but the, uh, this is like a brick joke where it's, it's introduced, and by the time you've forgotten about it, then you come back and get the context for it. But that's it's really interestingly specific, and, and of all the things to focus on from Odysseus's journeys, that's an interestingly sp specific one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's not one that shows up in the comic books very often. You know, when you when most mm-hmm. people think of the Odyssey, they think of really two or three episodes that are right in a row very early on in the poem. They think of mm-hmm. the sirens. They think of uh, they think of the cyclops. They think of uh, maybe Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla and Charybdis. We argue about how to pronounce that in a later episode, folks. Um, but but the one that is important to Homer is the cattle of the sun, and uh, that's that gets touched on, you know, three episodes from now, four episodes from now. I want to get back to the difference between Achilles and. Um, Achilles and Odysseus. Jordan, you said that uh, that Achilles is all on the surface, and Odysseus, how did you put it, presents a variety of surfaces? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> a constantly I, I, changing mask. Right, and, and Odysseus is kind of a minor character in uh, in the Iliad, so I wonder if that contrast exists there as well, or is if when you're when you're reading the the Iliad, unless you're thinking forward to the Odyssey, maybe you don't think about really don't, don't think of Odysseus and uh, Achilles as equals. Yeah, it's really hard not to, though. I mean, or, or it's really hard not to read Odysseus in the Iliad mm-hmm. without already knowing something about him from the Odyssey, because these things have been paired for so long. I mean, I the first time I read the Iliad, I already knew who Odysseus was and what to expect from him, despite having never read the Odyssey and basically. Uh, basically only seen the 20 minute DuckTales version of the odyssey um i remember that magic of dispel is the is the harpies right maybe i'm thinking uh, of something else well she, she is like a circe character if i remember correctly uh and the harpies or no the sirens are some sort of weird creature that pops up out of the sand they must I, be I jason still... and the argonauts too then because because i remember magic of dispel being harpies anyway I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was supposed to be Jason. I, just, I remember it being the Odyssey. Anyway, weird detour. But uh, I don't know. The uh, my my impression of Odysseus in the Odyssey, or excuse me, in the Iliad, was always of a secondary character who's still got a lot going on mm-hmm. because of the way other characters defer to him. The way he's immediately, you know, when we need somebody who will know how to adjust constantly to the constantly shifting Achilles situation they go get Odysseus, right? Mm. Uh, and then there's also his epic team up with Diomedes to go raid the, the uh, Trojan camp at one point. The ninja um, raid, as David Grubbs calls it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Coyle, what would you add to that? Um, yeah, so there's a there's a, a set of speeches uh, from a, a Greek philosopher named Antisthenes, which is you know, hundreds of years after after the Odyssey, but uh, uh, it's it's set in the argument between Achilles or between Odysseus and Ajax over who gets Achilles's armor after he dies, so, and I think that kind of lines up the characters really well with Ajax kind of acting as the the Achilles figure there. Uh, so uh, Ajax's speech is all about, look, I'm I'm brave in battle. I've never run away. Uh, I've I've clearly won everything I've ever fought because I'm still here standing. And that's why I should get the armor. You know, I am I am courageous, and it's my own strength that has earned this for me. I'm the true heir of Achilles. Uh, Odysseus runs away. Odysseus goes and hides. Sometimes he stands and fights, and sometimes he doesn't. And you can never trust him. And then Odysseus's speech is, "Look, I, I adapt myself to the circumstances." Right. Sometimes it is right to run away, and sometimes it's right to lie and pretend to be on the other side, and then stab the guy in the back. And sometimes it's right to stand and fight. Uh, some, sometimes you, you, you need to, uh, hold them. yeah, yeah. Hold <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I like your, your description of the, the multiple surfaces that, that lines up really well with even the way the ancient Greeks would have, uh, would have, would have read this. Who is the person who made that speech coil? Antisthenes. So the, uh, the guy who's the founder, uh, he was a student of Socrates, hated Plato as all of the other students of Socrates did. Sure. And the kind of co-founder of cynicism and stoicism okay because i was just thinking that sounds more like a, a roman view of odysseus slash ulysses because the romans very famously hate odysseus yeah right beware of greeks I, gifts. I assume we'll get to when we get to the aeneid if if we get to the aeneid i can't remember if we read the aeneid or not you know i'm i'm um i'm infamous among my colleagues for hating the aeneid <laughs> But uh, that, that's neither that's neither here nor there. Maybe we'll get to that in a few. Uh, I've few been years. waiting. I've been waiting for a long time to be able to say this since one of our country music episodes. But Michael, that's a dumb opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
despite the invocation of Odysseus here, um, the first four books of the Odyssey are really about his son Telemachus. Uh, and I, that surprises a lot of people, I think, because again, when you think of the Odyssey, you think of those two or three episodes that happen right around book eight. Um, but instead, we get a lot of kind of mooning by Telemachus. Uh, do you guys have any insight about why Homer would start with Odysseus's son and not with Odysseus himself? Well, yeah, it's uh, it, it's showing us why Odysseus's absence is such a big deal. Right, the uh, his his home is both in disarray and under attack, like an under under this. It's it's almost a siege by the by the suitors, and Telemachus, uh, because Odysseus isn't dead, maybe, uh, although maybe he is. Telemachus doesn't know. Should he try to kick these suitors out? Should he just hold the fort until his dad gets back? Uh, and and you know, there, there's no way to know an answer to that. And he is just just becoming or has just become an adult. So this is his first big decision, right? Uh, 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 so yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing the chaos that the household is in. That's why Odysseus being gone is such a big deal. And, and I don't remember what book specifically we were supposed to have done, but we, we see by contrast when Telemachus gets in books three and four into households that are not in chaos, we see what they should be, mm-hmm. right? We see, we see what, would, what it would be like if Odysseus were there. Yeah. So we feel Odysseus's absence in this first book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's it's similar to the same way that and random connection that I think I've made before. Uh, the Beowulf poet keeps Beowulf out of the scene for the first several hundred lines. He's not even named until I think he actually presents himself to Hrothgar. Uh, so that again, you're you're seeing the situation. You're seeing how bad it is and what the how badly we need a hero. Um, I, I feel like also, um, in a way, where the Odyssey is about homecoming. Um, I mean, this is this is a really common theme. You know, if you talk to a lot of veterans, even nowadays, uh, the way they kind of bring the war with them, or the war has preceded them, uh, so that when they come back from, you know, in this case, ten years of the Trojan War, and of course, there's been ten years for it to settle down, but things have only gotten worse in Ithaca. Uh, Odysseus is not escaping the war by going home. He's actually going back to a home that has been changed really tremendously by the war. Uh, and Telemachus is having to deal with that himself. And of course he's, he's coming of age, which is one of the, the kind of recurrent things, themes of his part of the story. Um, and I, I don't know how, how much we want to later get into the theme of hospitality, but in Odysseus's absence, the breakdown of hospitality, this like ironclad, code of how to treat guests and how guests are supposed to treat their hosts uh, is just being flouted left and right. Uh, and you see that I, I knew that that was a theme coming into my rereading of the Odyssey, but it had been like a decade or so since I'd read it. But I was surprised to realize how in your face mm-hmm. the hospitality theme is right from the very beginning. The first time Telemachus walks into, excuse me, the first time Athena in disguise walks into Odysseus's house, she's having to step over the suitors uh, but is properly greeted by Telemachus, which I think is, you know, a, a good narrative artist knows how to introduce a character properly, and that's a, a really great introduction in this one. Yeah, yeah it's th- it's the central ethic of the poem is uh, its mm-hmm. hospitality. There's really very few episodes that you can't relate back to hospitality directly or indirectly. Go ahead, Quail. I'm right. sorry I cut you off. No, no, I, I, was, uh, I was reading some... Uh... Uh, some some comments on this that a professor had put online, and they point out that the suitors, the the ones whose families are mentioned, are people who either didn't go to the Trojan War at all, uh, so they're they're already sort of shirking their, their social responsibilities, or they're people whose families were killed in the Trojan War, so they they didn't have the uh, the the you know the the right quote, right kind of up, upbringing to teach them. That you don't go and trash someone else's place, right? That's that's not how you behave as a guest. Uh, you don't take advantage of the host's obligations uh, beyond what's you know proper. So there, there's even even their homes are in disarray, even though it's it's in the background of, of all of this. Although I, I like your point about the uh, the, the the Trojan War homecoming uh, and and dealing with that as veterans. There is a uh, I won't say it's great because I don't think any of them are great, but they're all fun. Uh, episode of Hercules's legendary journeys that deals with 
the the Trojan War guys coming home and trying to get resettled and how do they they reacclimate and I think at one point one of them does kill a bunch of people who had you know invest infested his house so uh, I'd have to go back and rewatch it but I, I think that's there. Is yeah. that the Kevin Sorbo show? That is yes, the it Kevin is. Sorbo show, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is the highlight of 90s television. The, as the far three as... gods not dead, Kevin Sorbo. From Mound, Minnesota. I used to drive through Mound every day on my way home from the college I taught at. I, well, I don't I always think it's where it's where the Andrews sisters are from and where Kevin Sorbo is from. There you go. I'll tell you, there's no sign for Kevin Sorbo, but there is a sign for the, for the Andrews sisters. <laughs> but it's even worse than that. Um, to return to the conversation, it's not even worse than Kevin Sorbo. Um, it's even worse than that because later in the poem, we find out that Odysseus was like a father to these guys. So it's not just that they're in, in there mooching off this great man. They're in there mooching off this great man who showed them incredible kindness. So, so they really mm-hmm. have no loyalty whatsoever. Um, and, you know, they're, they, they spend the entire poem more or less plotting to kill the man's son and and carry the carry his wife off quote-unquote marry her who knows what actually was going to happen you know what i mean right well it's even uh i when we recorded episode 10 dear listener you can look forward to this uh we spent quite a while kind of puzzling over the details of odysseus and telemachus having some of the slave girls executed mm-hmm. in the aftermath of killing all of the uh, all of the suitors, and I by the time I reached that part of the poem, I had forgotten that right there in book one, you have one of the slaves who is supposed to be you know personally loyal to Penelope, generally loyal to Odysseus's household, snitching on Penelope to the suitors right to someone outside the household who is uh, trying to take advantage of Penelope, which is a uh, really serious betrayal um that's not a little thing i mean no by no means especially in a world in which the security of your household is all you've got Mm -hmm. right which is which is why hospitality is so important have either of you ever taught this to teenagers i will sometimes like go off on a 30 minute jag in Western Civ and kind of summarize it in detail. <laughs> but I've never, I've never had a chance to, to really teach it. Yeah. I, uh, I once team taught a class called ancient Greek politics, uh, where we, we spent kind of the first, I don't know, hour and a half of the class on the Iliad and the Odyssey both, but I've, I've never taught it in, in and of itself. Cause to me, it's really the perfect, text to teach a bunch of 18 19 year olds because we begin not with the great man but with the great man's son uh an mm. 18 or 19 year old who doesn't know who he is his lineage is in question which means his identity is in question he's very uncertain about both the present and the past and the future all he wants to do is be an adult but without a father you know he doesn't really know how to be an adult and he has some uh he has a stand-in mentor right that's where we get um that's where we get the term mentor and it's why the word mentee is stupid because it's not a word you should be calling those people your telemachi uh if you if you want to call them something but um i i think i think this is a a poem that makes sense on a visceral level to people that age and and it, it works very well alongside something like Oedipus the King, which is also about not knowing who you are because you don't really know who your parents are. It's, mm. it's, it's kind of, um, oh, to, to bring in a very lowbrow reference. It, it's kind of like that first back to the future movie where Marty all of a sudden can't figure out who he is anymore because his mother is not the person whom his whole life he'd been led to believe she was right. He goes back and finds out that she does uh, drink and smoke and uh, park with uh, boys, sit in the back seat of cars with boys. Um, I, I think you've got something on a higher register like that happening here to Telemachus. He has this rumor about who his father is and thus a rumor to live up to. Uh, it's hmm. hard enough to live up to a flesh and blood person, but how do you live up to a superhero, a legendary superhero? That's Telemachus. And and I, yeah. I find that very, very appealing here in the first two books of the Odyssey. What do you think? I'd say, I, yeah, definitely. Um, 
I, I it, it's interesting how having read this a number of times at very different stages of life, how it hits you differently. Because uh, as a young person, you know, th- I think the phrase visceral is really apt because rereading Telemachus trying to step up and be a man and, you know, form this council on behalf of his father and stuff and get laughed at. Mm-hmm. I mean, who who hasn't had that happen when you, you know, you 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 take a reach and try to do a, the mature thing and get mocked for it. That's that's crushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we we aren't getting to Odysseus yet, but having you know rereading it now as a father and a husband um, hits you from a completely different angle. Um, but uh, I had something else I wanted to say there and it's it's it slipped my mind. Uh, Coyle, you were making a, a face that made me intrigued to know what you thought. No, no, I, I was just uh, I hadn't thought about it in the sense of him not knowing who his father was, because obviously he knows who his father is in, in one sense, right? Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, in that sense, it's not like Oedipus. Uh, there's, there's no, I mean, we, we assume there's no mystery, uh, but what does that mean practically? Like what, what is, what is, what is his responsibility as the son of Odysseus? Uh, and again, is it, is it to just hold the line until Odysseus gets back? Is it to get the suitors out somehow? And what's that going to look like? Um, and uh, even uh, we, I guess we haven't talked about Penelope yet. Like, what what are what are Telemachus? Uh, what are his obligations to her? Mm-hmm. Is uh, he her son, or is he the man of the house? Right. Well, in in either case, right? Uh, I mean, he seems willing to respect her her agency, right? She she has a say in this, and I, I'm always kind of intrigued that all of the suitors seem willing. Like that is one convention they seem unwilling to break. Uh, they they all are insisting on her picking. Rather than saying, "Well, it's going to be me," and you know, fighting each other over it, or, or, uh, or again, whatever the whatever you know, kidnapping her and running away with uh, running away with her, uh, they they all seem to be willing to let her choose, but they're also insistent that she choose. Well, what does that what does that mean for Telemachus? Uh, is is he really letting her make this decision, and then only reacting to what she does? Again, I I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. It's not modern, and yet there's something kind of yeah. eternal in it. So it's a, it's yeah. a situation that is cannot possibly be anybody's in real life. I guess it could be somebody's in real life. Uh, we don't have superheroes, but I guess if your if your father was the president and he abandoned your family, you you might you might feel something <laughs> like something like this. But um, it, it at the same time, it's something that almost every 19 year old really knows exactly what Telemachus is feeling like. And so yeah. before we get anything from Odysseus, we get Telemachus trying to figure out what his role in all this is going to be. And then, you know, spoiler alert, by the end, he and Odysseus stand side by side. He he becomes a man. And the poem, The Odyssey, is in some sense uh, a poem about Telemachus slowly, by fits and starts, becoming a man. Yeah. And you see it begin here um before the the end before book one ends he he takes control of the situation he claims his inheritance but he's still moving forward athena still has to push him to do all sorts of things that if he were if he were truly self-actualized to use a a kind of annoying psychological (laughs) term if he were truly self-actualized he he wouldn't need her to push him so so he's he's still getting there but he does get there and uh you know, if you if you don't know anything about the Odyssey other than, um, other than the the sirens and Skill and Charybdis, uh, the, the Telemachus can, uh, parts can come as a, a kind of pleasant surprise. I'm I'm interested in what you guys thought about the the role of Athena there, because uh, she she does sort of shove him out the door, but she, in doing that, also tells him where to go, and I I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're supposed to think he would have he would have known to do that anyway, like to go to to mainland Greece basically and look up uh, uh, Nestor and Menelaus and, and find out what happened. Uh, is is that the next logical step? And he just needs the nudge to get him to do it, or would he never have thought of that? Would he never have thought I should get on a boat and leave the house? <laughs> And I, 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 again, I don't know what the answer there is. I'm, I'm not sure how to read Athena's interaction or, or her intervention here. 
That's a really good question. This is maybe this is. Um, I hesitate to put it this way because it is it's porting over vocabulary from a completely different tradition. But what that uh, you know, using the, the the language of psychology and talking about self actualization, uh, may, maybe an opposing way to to talk about that might be Athena. But let me put it this way. Um, Coming of age is something that you need divine assistance with. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> which, yeah, right. Uh, we've all done it. We, you know, as Christians, that's where you, you know we would talk about grace, which was the word that I was hesitant to use. Maybe Athena is fulfilling some kind of role like that, uh, where because of the favored position that Odysseus enjoys, right, which is part of the inheritance that he's passing on to Telemachus, right, the favor of a goddess, an immortal, who will uh, form another link of continuity with his father's generation and Laertes' generation. Uh, maybe, maybe that's uh, kind of a hint to that again, to coming of age, becoming a man, you know, assuming, you know, claiming your inheritance, assuming your proper position in society is not just an issue of maturity, but it's of religious significance. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in this society in which fathers have priestly functions to right. uh, one extent or another. Right. Right. And again, not to not to keep harping on the household, but becoming a man is taking your rightful place. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, uh, it, it's moving from the place of the child to the place of of the adult of of, of the, the the man in the house, which which uh, is also part of the crisis of of. Odysseus being gone, right? Uh, Telemachus is now an adult, so uh, so so uh, the the fact that she was busy raising Telemachus is no longer an excuse not to pick a suitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so Odysseus, like he needs to be back there. Like there there, there is no more time for delay uh, because like the the moment is now, and uh, any more delay and it's some something's going to to turn bloody. I think it's telling that what what Telemachus is doing when Athena shows up is that he's sitting on the shore looking out to sea. It's this very passive version of what he ends up doing, right? Whether Athena prompts him to it or whether he would have eventually done it anyway, I don't know. But he starts off as passive and he ends up being active and he ends up sailing across the sea looking for news of his father instead of sitting there waiting for the news to come to him and that 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 strikes me as one version of what adulthood must look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in, in the memoirs we read of people, the the passages on childhood are always interesting because of what happens to the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're catching Telemachus at that transition where he's starting to actually take control. Um, not to, not to kind of repeat what we've been saying for the last ten minutes, but that that's that that move from passivity to activity, I think, is a good way to frame it. Well, and the, and the response of the suitors is to immediately start talking about killing him. Sure. Yeah. Because <laughs> now he's a real threat. Right. Well, you talk about um, oh, brother, where art thou? Is an adaptation <clears throat> of the Odyssey. These first four books are called the Telemachy, and maybe the greatest adaptation of that is Home Alone. <laughs> I guess it's kind of the opposite of Home Alone, though, because uh, Kevin McAllister is stuck there without anybody, and uh, and Telemachus's whole problem is the one person in the world who needs to be there is not, and everybody else is. Hmm. It's like Kevin with a whole house full of buzzes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see, I want to read a description. I'm using Lombardo for this one because that's the line numbers I have written down. It's um, 134 through 154 of book one. Uh, Telemachus spoke and Pallas Athena followed him into the high-roofed hall. When they were inside, he placed her spear in a polished rack beside a great column where the spears of Odysseus stood in a row. Then he covered a beautifully wrought chair with a linen cloth and had her sit on it with a stool under her feet. He drew up an intricately painted bench for himself and arranged their seats apart from the suitors so that his guest would not lose his appetite in their noisy and uncouth company and so he could inquire about his absent father. 
A maid poured water from a silver pitcher into a golden basin for them to wash their hands, and then set up a polished table nearby. Another serving woman, grave and dignified, set out bread and generous helpings from other dishes she had. A carver set down cuts of meat by the platter and golden cups. Then a herald came by and poured them wine. And I, I find that passage interesting because, look, I have no idea what the historical relationship between the Iliad and the Odyssey are. I, when I read them, I don't get the sense they were written by the same person. Um, but it's almost like the author of the, the Odyssey, the Homer of the Odyssey, is trying to set this poem apart from the Iliad. Um, because what we have here are descriptions of this world apart from war. There's nothing relaxed or beautiful or luxurious in the Iliad. And if there is, probably somebody is stealing it and defiling it. Here we have this like wonderful world of physical objects and meat and wine. And there's no olive oil here, but Lord knows there's a lot of olive oil in this poem. And uh, I, I really find that description both very well done and also very important for establishing the relationship of this poem to the other poem hmm. which is not so much a question as just me lecturing you what do you guys think <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i mean there there certainly are descriptions like that in the iliad there, there there might even be descriptions of objects like that but they're mostly going to be of weapons and armor right yeah. uh, there uh, or of the spoils of war uh you're not going to have the the same kind of domestic scene uh maybe i'd have to go back and look maybe there are some inside of troy like maybe when we're when we're seeing kind of behind the walls, we we get something like that, but nothing certainly nothing springs springs immediately to mind. Uh, although again, I I think the part of the point of this in the Odyssey is this this is the stakes, right? This is this is what is uh, what Telemachus has to protect, and and what's gonna what's going to be lost if uh, if Odysseus doesn't get back. Right. It's it's Telemachus's stakes, but it's also Odysseus's reward. His reward right. for having fought in that war for 10 years. And isn't he at, at sea for another 10 years? It can't be quite that long or else Telemachus couldn't have been born. But, I mean, he's he's at sea for, you know, many, many years more. So he's, he's at war for all these years and then he's clinging to a life raft for close to another decade. And, like, this is what's waiting for him. And at the time, it must have been the very height of luxury. It seems kind of rustic to us, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, we uh we talk in the in the one episode about the bed quite a bit. Oh uh, yeah, the bed's and, super uh, important. It it sounds neat until you remember this is this is a tree root. Like the <laughs> like, it sounds mattresses. neat. Yeah, it is it is not the height of luxury. It sounds awful, <laughs> like deeply uncomfortable. What if Tougher really people made, than we are. Uh, beds out of tree roots, or if it's just like a metaphor for fertility. Uh, or it's it's just something that fit the meter. I mean, that's that's also <laughs> it's it's a pretty intricate image. It probably wasn't just that, and but that's always the cheater answer. Be. <laughs> well, that's that's always the cheater answer for Homer, right? Is is if you don't understand why a description applies, uh, just blame blame it on the what's that called formulae, right? The uh, the, the the phrases, uh, the stock phrases in Greek that fit the meter, that the poets would just kind of pull out of the air and apply. Uh, uh, like, so, or like yes. macros in Microsoft Word. Yeah. <laughs> now, Can you imagine the, uh, holding this poem in your head? Like, I, I know that before the invention of writing, people's memories were much better. Like, we get that from the Phaedrus. Yeah. But, man, um, I don't know how many people wrote this, but every one of them must have been a genius. <laughs> I was going uh, to say to the uh, to the question... Um, the, the original question, exactly what Coyle said, that this is the stakes. Um, it's also, as a counterpoint to the Iliad, you know, uh, the the Iliad is, is uh, I'm trying to think of how to frame this exactly. I watch a ton of war movies because um, I'm a military <laughs> historian and I, I grew up on them. Uh, and there's certain kinds of war movies, right? You get the ones that are like worm's eye view where you're just with a bunch of soldiers and you see exactly what their situation is and you never learn anything more about what's going on than what they see. Like uh, the, thin, the thin blue line, is that the name? No, thin red line. Or the, yeah, the thin red line, uh, that recent Brad Pitt one, Fury, is like that. Um, 
but then you've got others that intercut war scenes with stuff that's going on at home. Hmm. And the tone, the difference in tone between those two kinds of storytelling is dramatically different. And the Iliad is like the first kind of those, right? Because all you get is war. Like that, that is the entire, even the Trojans who can sort of go home between the fighting, everything is about the war. Everything is seen through the lens of war. So this is, at least for the Achaean side, for Odysseus's side, the first time we're seeing the home front. And so it's a reminder of what Odysseus left and what was at stake for him, as Coyle put it. Uh, but also, even more to the point, what's at stake now, now that he's supposed to have been home for 10 years and yet is not. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a very different world, but I, I actually do find it at least thematically resonant with the Iliad mm-hmm. uh, in, in you know, showing the two different worlds that these stories are taking place in. Right. Uh, the, the Iliad is a war story, and this is uh, – domestic seems like too tame of a word, but it's all taking place within a household, right? Yeah, well, at least, at least you know, three or four books of it are. And, and yeah. what you get on the other side is, is Odysseus is kind of swashbuckling – Right. Adventures, his Star Trek, <laughs> yeah. Planet of the Week adventures, <laughs> which is tellingly told in flashback mm-hmm. in a domestic setting. That's true. Yeah, that's fair. Right. Uh, do we do we want to talk at all about why he's not home? Uh, yeah, go for it. I mean, I, I don't want to take away from Telemachus because that's that's not the point of these books, but I think it is mentioned, right? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, so Poseidon, like the, the the gods, at least in the first couple of books, are not as involved, at least at, uh, as they are in the Iliad. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering the Iliad, but uh, it seems like Athena pops up, and we get a brief kind of brief interaction between Athena and Zeus, but mostly the gods are, I don't I'm less involved, I suppose. They're they're not as directly engaged in the going on goings on uh or maybe it's just because it's only athena so it just feels like they're less engaged no, I, think, uh, I think that's quite fair but uh uh but the the reason all of this starts is uh, odysseus angers is it poseidon when he blinds the cyclops mm-hmm. so that's uh uh that's where the the disruption originally comes from is divine retribution for a it's not a sin i don't know what you'd call it an act of self-defense. Well, I mean, um, among other things, and I, I really don't want to scoop the people who have, I, I think, is that book six or book eight, whatever. I don't, I don't yeah. want to scoop those people, but I mean, w- among other things, it is a violation of hospitality. The, yeah. the Cyclops sure. violated, and then Odysseus violated it right back. But also, the Cyclops is Poseidon's son, and Poseidon takes right. it personal, you know? Sure, sure. The but word I, mean, the word I like use... A, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I, 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 now, yeah, I don't know about sin. Uh, the word I use when I'm trying to explain the Greek view of these things to my Western Civ students is transgression, because you don't get the impression so much. And I, I quote part of the Theogony uh, where Hesiod is describing the Furies and how they punish not necessarily infractions or moral failings, but rather transgressions. Like there's a, there's a clearly, well, <laughs> not so clearly actually delineated boundary between what belongs to the gods and where the mortals are supposed to live. And if mortals trip over that line intentionally or not, the Furies are going to punish that. And I mean, Odysseus didn't know who Polyphemus was. Uh, he, he knew who he, he knew about the, the cattle of the sun, but his men didn't. And they're the ones who, you know, breached that uh, they violated the oaths they took to him as their leader. Um, but, Nevertheless, Odysseus is punished for it, even though it's not his fault. I mean, just crossing the line or transgressing a boundary is the is the way I usually at least try to explain it. And, and now the gods are stepping back in, uh, having having disrupted his trip home, whether deservedly or not. Now they're stepping back in and uh, uh, re re intervening to uh, to set things right. Which uh, uh, to to scoop was it the three of us on that last episode also. It wasn't me. No. Uh, okay, well, to, to scoop uh, me and Jordan on the last episode, uh, <laughs> Athena has to fix that too, right? Even even the homecoming requires Athena to show up. Right. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've spoiled <laughs> the end of the poem, to be sure. <laughs> well, Homer does, kind of from the beginning too. That's true. And, and, and I, the original audience would have known everything that was going to happen anyway, I suspect. Right. 
Yeah, ancient Greece was no place for internet nerds. <laughs> no, no concern for continuity. They don't care about spoilers. Um, it is the anti-internet. The the other thing I wanted to say about the domestic space uh, <clears throat> of of Ithaca is that the, there's a there's a specter that haunts this whole poem, and it's Agamemnon. Um, Agamemnon comes home and his wife Clytemnestra is having an affair and she and her lover conspire to murder him and I, I think there's always the threat everybody mentions it everybody who talks to anybody in this poem mentions Agamemnon because it's you know it's so horrible this is like the, well, the, we, the we last meet thing him, you right? want what's that? we meet him like yeah, he's, he's he, in the poem he's in hell yeah in Hades but um, so, so I, I think that that Spectre is haunting Odysseus um, as he comes home as well. We don't know. Uh, will Penelope have um, have taken the opportunity to take one of these suitors as her lover? And, you know, does some sort of violent end await Odysseus? Um, now, we know that, in fact, that doesn't happen because we get the view of the Odysseus-less Ithaca at the beginning of the poem. But Odysseus doesn't know that. Um, and so, like I said, that's that's always a threat here. Yeah, that uh, that makes an appearance in the the conversation Athena has with Zeus, right? Uh, is uh, are are we? She doesn't say it quite this way, but are we going to let this happen again? Right? Are, are we are we going to uh, to let this uh, uh, this this disruption continue, or uh, are we gonna are we gonna step in? Am I allowed to? I think is is kind of the 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 theme of her question can can I intervene? Uh, and I mean Zeus's answer is yeah of course why would I ever object to that? Uh, except all the times you object to it. Yeah. <laughs> Zeus is I, I I think Grubbs points this out in a later episode. Zeus is very weak in this poem um, compared to the Iliad. Yeah. In in terms of gods, this is Athena's poem, and uh, and Poseidon has something to do with it as well. But uh, Athena is clearly the the boss god, as far as the Odysseus story is is told, which the uh, again the the cheater answer on that is uh, that's just a that's an editorial choice. Uh, so the uh, oh Jordan help me out the the tyrant of Athens, Solon, uh, Pisistratus. No. Oh, when uh, historically? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, uh, I think you're right. Um, I, so this is like 500 or so AD, some, somewhere in the neighborhood of that. I should have looked this up before before the Persian Wars, the one who was kicked yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 500 BC then. 500, Isis, yeah, 500 BC. Sorry, Pisistratus uh, sounds right, but I. Uh, so so he uh, he is the one who orders the 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 sort of codification of of Homer's writings. So the the version we have certainly isn't the version that if there was a person named Homer, Homer wrote what we have is the, the sort of the King James version of, uh, of the, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Uh, so the, the emphasis on Athena uh, there, there could have been, again, this is, this is kind of the cheater answer. Well, Pisistratus wanted that to be the case because he's, you know, solidifying his rule over Athens. So let's, let's put the patron goddess at the heart of the poem. Uh, in, in terms of saying this is the official version. That's interesting. Uh, I, I didn't know that history. Yeah, I would. I, I I would probably accept that that answer on a paper from a freshman, but maybe not from a senior. So. <laughs> well, and I mean that that's that's the kind of oh what do they call it? That's the Doylean answer, not the Watsonian answer. You know, that's the out of universe answer for why Athena is so important. But in universe, right. I think what it shows you is that. Odysseus and his family are beloved by this particular goddess who is what wisdom and kind of intel military intelligence strategy as opposed to Ares who's you know like a berserker <laughs> the association of Athena and Odysseus is just 100% appropriate I don't know if Odysseus is the way he is because of Athena but they were made for each other my favorite scene in the whole poem, and I was fortunate enough to get on the episode where it happens, is uh, Odysseus finally gets home. Athena comes up to him on a beach, and he lies about who he is, and she's like, you wily bastard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they really are made for each other. And you see Telemachus kind of 
age into that as the as the mm. poem progresses. He becomes a, a true heir of Odysseus in in every way you can think of. Which you know, from our perspective, maybe not such a great thing because as as Jordan said, Odysseus isn't really the sort of person you want to be around. Although probably <laughs> more him than Achilles, right? Definitely. Yeah, I was say I could I could see if he if you were on good terms with him, mm-hmm. I think Odysseus would be fine. You know, he can uh, but I feel the same story. way about. I feel the same way about Achilles, right? If you're on good terms with him, yeah, he'd, he'd be a great guy to have around. And um, I, oh, go ahead. I feel like I, was saying, no. I feel like Achilles would take the chicken leg right out of your hand, <laughs> <laughs> and you would owe it to him because he's so clearly superior to you. Yeah. Well, and and as was said repeatedly in the Iliad episode, neither of them are Diomedes. Like he is the awesomest person in in both of these plays or both of these poems. Well, at least you can call them novels. I just got done grading a bunch of essays, so yeah, I'm I'm kind of fed up with reading the word novel applied to any anything written in letters. Um, I I was going to say to to Odysseus's credit, something I think that sets him very much apart from Achilles is because Achilles at the beginning of the Trojan War is like a teenager, um, and he that. That immaturity is reflected in the Iliad, I think. I think we talked about that in the Iliad episodes. Odysseus, at least, as cunning and as ruthless as he can be, is doing it for responsible reasons. It is not strictly about his personal glory. Uh, when he re- The mayhem that he wreaks when he returns to Ithaca is to restore order to the thing that he has responsibility for he's essentially casting which, uh, demons out of his house right i mean he's yeah. he's spraying holy water right and, and we talk in the in the final episode about the ritual cleansing of the house following the combat as well those guys got to get got <laughs> right. that's so satisfying well and, and you really get a sense of um, since we haven't really talked about book two, you really get a sense of how loathsome they are in book two, where Telemachus calls them on their BS and their response is to blame Penelope for the whole thing. Oh, it's yeah. her fault. She wouldn't choose which one of us to marry. So that's why we're still hanging around here, mooching off your food. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's sad in the Iliad when Hector dies. It is not sad when the suitors uh, in, in the Odyssey die. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Coyle. Like Achilles has a a worthy rival but there is no worthy rival to odysseus except maybe poseidon and that's a whole different thing <laughs> right there's there's just a lot of them yeah right there yeah and i mean maybe maybe you, you said the ending of, of this poem is satisfying i i i have always found it a little bit uh over the top whereas the the climax of the iliad where where uh where hector and Achilles square off really is epic, you know, capital E yeah. epic. Well, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't want to scoop too much of what we talk about in that final episode, but I mean, where it, it is this, it is the satisfaction, I think of a really good action movie in which a good guy takes care of a passel of baddies. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not going to say that it is superior as art to the climax of the Iliad. Cause I don't think it is. And I think in the ancient world, the Iliad was preferred for some of the same reasons. I used to think I liked the Odyssey better, and and I do like a lot of the Odyssey, but I, you know, at 38 at least, I think the Iliad is the superior poem. Um, although either both of them are much better than anything I could write in a million lifetimes, so I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to put myself as the judge of these things. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I would agree. Uh, when when I read these. My freshman year of college, I liked the Odyssey better. I think uh, because it was just a better, a better narrative. Like it was a more fun narrative. It's more fun. Uh, it, yeah, it wasn't book after book of endless names and kind of slow motion descriptions of someone being stabbed through the nipple. Uh, <laughs> like stuff, stuff happened in it once you got past the first four books. But looking back now, yeah, I think I prefer the Iliad too. Yeah. Which is not to say the Odyssey isn't great. I mean, I, I love no, both no. of them, but the Iliad is is the there there are great highs in both of them, but the Iliad I think has greater depth yeah. to match it. I would I would say that. Um, our our listeners have probably picked up on the, the this is the first episode they're hearing 
Uh, it's one of the very last episodes we've recorded, so we're all thinking very much about the kind of overall structure of the Odyssey and how it fits in with everything else. So I'm sorry if we're uh, loading down this first episode with stuff that maybe we should have saved for the last one. But hey, what are you going to do? What else you guys want to say about these first two books? Uh, refreshing myself on it, um, the craft uh, that Homer and, and I, I like to think that there was a, a single poet for both poems named, named Homer, but that's I recognize that that's contentious. Uh, but the the um, what what in movie terms or in no, novelistic terms you would call setups and payoffs are all really really masterfully done. You get everything that's going to matter in the climax of the poem in these first couple of books. So you, you see the situation with the suitors, you see the betrayal even of members of Odysseus' household, you see the awkward rise of Telemachus and the cunning but also the vulnerability of Penelope. Uh, as Coyle put it, you see the stakes because despite everything, Ithaca is still worth saving, right? And it is still Odysseus's. Uh, but you also get little little notes um, you know, about the the people who are still true to Odysseus, like Euryclea showing up and, you know, her grief over Telemachus leaving is very genuine and she's going to matter in the end. And she's going to be the first person in, if I remember correctly, the first person in Odysseus's household to identify him the first when he's returned home. Person. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Which is another great, another great scene. Um, but, uh, all of those, uh, I mean, it it is almost novelistic or cinematic in its care to prepare the listener and later the reader for everything that's going to matter in the mechanics of the plot later, um, which is not something not not a way you'd normally think of talking about epic poetry. Because mm-hmm. uh, if if there if if there's an uncinematic genre, it's probably epic. Um, we I think y'all have had an episode about all the terrible Beowulf adaptations there are for film. Uh, I mean, there are no, there are no good ones. Um, on the other hand, though, there have been many film treatments of the Odyssey, and while they usually don't measure up to the the heights of the poem, the Odyssey lends itself to that kind of storytelling. I think, which is one of the things I think that maybe gives it staying power. Uh, that's not necessarily thematic, but it, it is a part of the art that I've noticed this time through. It's actually not a bad argument for it being the work of a single mind. And that that's what sticks out the most to me is is if this were the product of a committee, and I, I hate nothing in the world like I hate committees. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's it would I feel like the seams would show a lot more. I feel like it would be a lot more haphazard. There would be a lot more, for lack of a better word, continuity errors. Uh, famously in the Iliad, you get one big one where one guy is killed in one chap, uh, one book, and he shows up in a crowd scene again later. <laughs> but if that's all you've got to go on, that's um, that's either a extremely careful editorial work, or I'm I'm inclined to think the hand of a single artist, whether he was named Homer or not. Sure. Yeah, I could be completely wrong about those things, but uh, that that's 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 something that I appreciate about the poem. I I, I always respect people choosing naive readings. If that if that's if that's not too insulting for you, choosing <laughs> choosing the kind of unlikely but traditional reading, I appreciate that because I what what I meant was I don't see the Odyssey and the Iliad as being by the same person or group of people. Right, and I can I can totally get that, but but like I said, I think there's also enough thematic resonance there uh they, they work so well in counterpoint with each other that maybe uh or again it could be two separate poets uh it's it's as such a far removed nobody will ever know for sure yeah um what what matters at least at, you know when i talk about this in a history class what matters is that the greeks thought of them as the work of a single poet um and uh you know respected him as one of the kind of the, the fathers of, of greek culture and greek society sure what do you think coil I have forgotten what the original question was. Uh, do you have anything <laughs> else to say about the first two books of the Odyssey? Uh, so I, I think if I, when when I get around someday to rereading this, I want to try to remember to read it with an eye to Penelope mm-hmm. uh, and her character, uh, because I mean she has clearly been holding this line by herself while Telemachus was a child, 
Right. I mean, this is this is everything before this book picks up has been her fight. And we're given almost none of that. And in fact, every time I want to go back, I don't want to say every time because I don't remember now, but I many times when she shows up on the scene, she is immediately sent back to her room. Uh, Yeah. And uh, and and it's I don't think it's because she's a weak woman. I don't think that's the uh, I don't think that's the character that's set up. So again, I want I want I want to reread that sort of with an eye to what what is going on with Penelope. I should um, as I've also I should probably point you to the Margaret Atwood adaptation of the Odyssey called the Penelopeiad, uh, which which does exactly that pays attention. But then to, I'd have to read some Margaret Atwood. You and, know I know that uh, I know that the Handmaid's Tale and especially the Handmaid's Tale fans are really obnoxious, but uh, Atwood's <laughs> really good and much smarter than her um, than her fans are. To be to be quite honest, I've not read I've, the I've enjoyed her essays, but I'm I'm sure it's good because it's her. Anyway, I, what were you saying, Coyle? Well, and then, and then I was thinking when Jordan was talking about movie adaptations, uh, I was just kind of going over the ones I've seen. And uh, I, I, I hope nobody disagrees that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is the best of them. I mean, because the Kirk Douglas Ulysses movie is an abomination. <laughs> and uh, and the, the made-for-TV, is it Armand Assant? Uh, Armand Assant, yeah. Uh, Wait, is, really? It's also really, really awful. Like, I would say it's dated. I think we have this discussion in episode ten too. Oh, uh, we might have. Uh, yeah, sorry, listener, yeah. if we've, we've done this. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's. It, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's awful. It's a '90s made-for-TV miniseries, so take it for what it's worth. Am I making it up that there's a version starring Ted Danson? That's Gulliver's Travels, isn't it? Gulliver's Travels. There yeah. is one of those. Ted Danson would probably be better in Gulliver's Travels than as Odysseus. Now that I think about it. <laughs> Uh, I think those were directed by the same guy, actually. I could be wrong. Oh, wow. The, the well, third dancing movie travels legendarily bad. <laughs> Armand Asante, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, he's he's good as the old Odysseus, but they try to make him up as 20 years younger Odysseus at the beginning, and it's borderline comical. Because um, he's supposed to be youthfully running around Ithaca before he heads off to the war, and uh, it's it's the makeup is not convincing. <laughs> Eric Bana the- is Odysseus in Troy, which is a terrible movie, but Eric Bana is not a bad choice for Odysseus. I would have watched yep. a full movie starring thirty-year-old Eric Bana as Odysseus. It's not Eric Bana though, is it? Is wasn't it yeah. uh, Boromir? Uh, Eric Eric Bana was Hector, and he's oh, great as Hector. That's right. That's right. Sean Sean Bean was Odysseus, yeah. and he was great as Odysseus. He was great. That movie was perfectly cast, like absolutely perfectly cast. But. And I, I stand on that. <laughs> no, 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 hey, no, I, I, uh, I agree a hundred percent. I think I think I said that in in one of the Iliad episodes. Yeah, there's not a casting decision in that I would change. I don't think it's just the movie's a big old turd. Yeah. <laughs> Even uh, Peter O'Toole weeping can't save it. I'm I'm the minority report, I guess, and I enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> going into it, I knew there were no gods, so I was like, all right, I know what I'm getting into, yeah. and it was fine. I thought I but, hated Diane Kruger, and then I saw um, Inglorious Bastards, and I thought, oh wow, she's actually she can actually be good in something, unlike in Troy. <laughs> well, all Wolfgang Peterson asked her to do in Troy was stand there and look pretty. Uh, she didn't have anything to do, and she was paired with Orlando Bloom, which um, the less said, the better. <laughs> yeah, the black uh, hole of charisma that is. Yeah, <laughs> that is Orlando Bloom. The uh, the to roll it back just a little bit, talking to Coil, talking about the suitors. Do we have any idea? Because when they're blaming Penelope for their problems, they talk about how she spent three years weaving a um funeral shroud burial shroud and in the fourth year one of her servants snitched on her and so they forced her to finish it so does that mean that for the first six years after the trojan war things were kind of status quo and then when it became clear odysseus might not be coming home all the jackals came out do we do we have any any clearer timeline on the 10 years in ithaca than that i don't because it it feels like it's been this way forever which I'm sure if you're living through it is how it feels. Um, I always think, aren't they going to run out of wine and meat at some point? 
Ithaca's got to be well stocked. <laughs> it must be, because they seem to of drink course, that's, just that's... casks of wine every night. Oh yeah, and every like every night they bring in sheep and oxen to butcher. You know, I mean, I guess that's one reason Odysseus is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way to put it. So peeved at them. One among many. Yeah. I think we're uh, we're coming up on an hour, so uh, if you guys don't have anything else to say about these first two books, I'll uh, I'll release us and our listeners. <laughs> uh, we won't be back next week, but somebody will be back next week to talk about, I believe, books three and four. Uh, so they'll finish up the telemachy before moving into the Odyssey proper. Uh, folks, thanks for listening. We'll have very detailed show notes for this episode and indeed all our episodes at christianhumanist.org uh, we are also on twitter at ch radio network i don't think either of you is on twitter is that right not anymore <laughs> i am but almost never use it so well i'm functionally no. kel bummer uh so you can you can look me up and see what sorts of absurd nonsense i'm spouting on twitter or you can just follow the network at ch radio network uh the christian uh, the the Core Curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>